Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Service. Well, hello, Voice America listeners, and thank you for joining me today. Um, Over the last couple of months, we have been living in quite a a different world. Everything from COVID challenges to racism, dealing with racism and and a history of misuse amongst and marginalization amongst people, people of color, people with disabilities. Last uh, time I spoke of a history of special education, and I, I wanted to continue that discussion today. There's so many different case laws that went into effect, so many different landmark cases that were so important. And they really did change how uh, not only we look at individuals with disabilities, but it also changed education and how we now put our full force into educating individuals with disabilities too. Not to sound like an old codger, but I've been around 30 years in special education. I started doing the work in the mid-80s. God, I guess that's almost 40 years. Uh, and most of the work that I did were is with children with severe, severe types of disabilities. Uh, severe motor disabilities, cognitive challenges, emotional issues. And these are the kids that are so most often marginalized away from society. Um, For the kids with physical challenges, it's very exhausting for parents and care providers to continually 24-7 provide the physical supports that are necessary. And for children with emotional issues, uh, it's common that the family has comorbidity also, where they are also dealing with challenges of emotional problems. So not having any outside resources, not having any outside supports is, is extremely challenging. And not only is it challenging to the parent, but what we see is that just with the same with our our population of people of color, they're kept down so that there isn't the successes that you see with other populations. So if they're marginalized, they're not in classrooms, they're not given the supports that they need, people with disabilities also can't succeed and and progress. And so this was the the case for many years. Um, and, and interesting enough, 
people have we've been talking about this for the last well, couple weeks and and people kind of ask like what was the first special education civil rights law or what was the biggest you know landmark case and i often will say brown versus the board of education because brown versus the board of education didn't just allow people of color to have an education it allowed for all people to have an education without discrimination so it was really that first law that said hey you know people with disabilities are also in this group of not being deserving of discrimination and marginalization after the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s many parents and advocacy groups for children with disabilities began their own movements in the US the federal courts systems to compel the states to provide equal educational opportunities now here's the thing is that most people have this like belief that education has always been free and education's always been available to everybody um, well that's not the case and it's also not the case that the the federal government sets the standards for education it's actually the state so when we look at what is called now and eventually was called FAPE free and appropriate public education this is something that has only been in existence since about 1975 it's not something that has always been around the individuals with disabilities education act IDA it's it's a it's a fluid document and there's been changes to it in 97 and 2004 there <clears throat> and these changes have allowed for more and more support systems to be put into place and for more individualization there's a lot of different there are many different papers that are out there there's a lot of good articles in regards to history of special education and also racism within our, how we apply our treatments and how different groups may have received different types of support or none and there's various cases out there so the earlier cases uh reflect the legal rights of students with disabilities and they emerged into eventually leading into as i said before a free and public appropriate public education or fape and then later the enactment of ida in these days it's doubtful that any child may be reasonably expected to succeed in life if he's denied the opportunity of an education such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it is the right that must be available to all on equal terms and that was chief justice earl warren writing that in regards to the unanimous decision on brown versus the board of education so i want to discuss 
five or six different cases that have come up over the years uh, that have led to what special education is now, which is quite different, quite different than what it was in the past. I have a little buzzing going on, and I fear that it's my mic. <clears throat> Anyways, um, uh, these landmark law uh, or, or la landmark cases have allowed for what we see today in our special education programs, which is a heck of a lot more support than was ever given in the past. And I was talking with a parent yesterday who's in the middle of a lawsuit with the school district, and they're affluent parents, and they have the ability to hire the top lawyer and around, and and they'll get exactly what they need. Because not because there'll be some great uh, uh, trial and the you know jury will decide this or that it's because case law already exists that allows us to know what the decision is before the decision is even made by a judge and so it's really always an oddity now to me that so many special education fights take place because it's almost always that the student will receive exactly what they need and if it can be proven or shown that there's a treatment that's appropriate for him, a school, uh, some type of intervention, uh, support personnel, then it's pretty much going to happen. But that wasn't the case. That's only been the case over the last five, maybe ten years. When I became a school psychologist in 1994, it was part of our training as school psychologists to be ready to go to court. And luckily, I was trained in a way to not, to only go to court or only go to fight in regards to what the student needed. So in my discussion yesterday with the parent whose child I'm getting ready to do an assessment on, I told them, look, I don't work for the school district and I don't work for you. I, I work for your kid because your kiddo is the one who's the silent voice. He's the one that needs somebody out there watching out for him and saying what's best for him. Not opinion, not what somebody wants to win, quote unquote, over their school district. Or not that the school district will be able to deny a service and say that they quote-unquote won. But rather, what does this kiddo need? And can we assess him in the way that is best for him so that he has a good program? So there's lots of prehistory to what the current special education situation is now. You know, one of the occurrences in discrimination had to do with language. 
in the language of the assessment because what was happening like in San Bernardino and Riverside counties between the 1920s and the 1970s was that if you even pretty much had a Spanish surname, you went right into special education. And it was due to not having appropriate assessments and thinking that the language levels were low, therefore the cognitive levels were low. And this was mistaken. And so, of course, there's laws in place now that say that you have to assess somebody in their own language. So when we come back from our break, we're going to discuss some specific case law that has led to the current state of special education. So we'll be right back. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back to this week's show. Um, we're discussing special education history and how it's connected to the current thoughts and states a uh, state of racism and discrimination that we're dealing with and have been dealing with for a couple hundred years. 
Now, there's this constitutional misnomer that the, there's a right to education. Uh, most Americans have this common misconception that providing a child the right of, to public education is guaranteed by the Constitution. Uh, that's not correct. Uh, education is actually the responsibility of the states. The Tenth Amendment of the U.S. implies that education is the responsibility of the state government, that education is a state, not federal matter, and has been seen as an, uh, was seen as essential by the founders of this country. This was because the state governments were seen as being closer and more connected to the people. So if you're interested in that, there's an article by Rogers and Rogers, um, actually by Yale, Rogers and Rogers in, from 1998 called The Legal History of the United States, What a Long Trip It's Been. And that's uh, in the Journal of Remedial Education, Special Education. So you can check that out. Um, you can always email me at seansurface at totalprograms.org to gain any of the articles or things that I talk about. Um, despite the lack of inherent federal right to public education, the Supreme Court in the early in the early disability cases applied the due process and equal protection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment to compare, compel the states to not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within the jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So we're dealing with that still a lot, where people that are here on visas, people that are here with uh, their parents may have green cards, people that were not born here but have lived here all their life um, are being discriminated against as immigrants, and uh, there's... Um, suits out there, civil suits out there right now about school districts not providing special education uh, uh, supports, which can get very, very expensive to people that they have deemed uh, to not be citizens. So this is a huge part of the 14th Amendment, um, but the 10th Amendment says that it's up to the state. So we're seeing a big difference between states and how they're responding to the needs of our immigrant population. Prior to the foundational disabilities rights cases being decided, exclusion of students with disabilities was the rule across the United States. One of the earliest reported cases that supported the philosophy of excluding students with disabilities was decided in 1893, where the Massachusetts Supreme Court upheld the expulsion of students solely due to poor academic ability on the ground that the student was too weak-minded to profit from instruction, and that was Watson versus the city of Cambridge in 1893. Um, there's an a article that you can read called The Evolution of Special Education by Estevez and Rao from 2008. Um, in regards to that case. Nearly 30 years later, in 1919, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, in ordering the exclusion of a child from public school, held 
that the very sight of the child with cerebral palsy will produce a depressing and nauseating effect upon others. And that was Betty versus the Board of Education of Antigo, Antigo um, in 1990. Um, if you're interested in some of these, you can go to Rights Law, W-R-I-G-H-T-S-L-A-W dot com, Rights Law, and you can look up some of the uh, um, case laws that I'm talking about. Even the Supreme Court United of the United States uh, had an issue of involuntary sterilization and ruled that it's better for the ro- world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve from imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit for continuing the their, for continuing their kind. Wow. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, said Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in Buck and Bell. So this is where we got into this whole, this was at the height of the eugenics uh, movement. Where, and this is what I talked about the last time, where it was thought, uh, this is called coming from Darwinism, and and the survival of the fittest, that if you have two strong people mate, then you'll have a strong individual come from that. But if you have a strong and a weak person mate, then the stronger person will be brought down to the weaker level. And if you have two weak people that mate, you then have a very weak person and a uh, uh, burden on society. Well, these were the old laws that led to a mentality that people with disabilities had less rights and were lesser than human. So, really, again, in 1954, with the Brown versus the Board of Education, everything changed. Everything changed in regards to how children with disabilities were being treated. Throughout U.S. history, states consistently and routinely enacted state statutes and regulations, statutes and regulations that allowed school officials and administrators to exclude children with disabilities from receiving public education. You know, you saw that or you heard that, you know, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was extremely popular, like Ginsburg is today, give that opinion, and if he had that opinion, well, then everybody should have that opinion. That we have enough imbeciles, the three generations of it is enough. So he's talking about the last 150 years before that. And one of the biggest parts of eugenics was to create a sterilization program that would then not just exclude, but extinguish the population of individuals with disabilities. So all of this changed in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Education. 
Decided in 1954, the Brown decision ruled that segregation within public schools was illegal, thereby ending as a matter of law segregation based on, excuse me, based on race. The Brown case determined that separate but equal doctrine established by the courts Plessy versus Ferguson in providing separate educational facilities based on race was in fact inherently unequal and violated the equal opportunity and due process clause of the 14th Amendment. As relating to education rights, the Brown court held that education is perhaps the most important function of the state and local government. It's very foundation of it's the very foundation of good citizenship. And such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it is the right that must be made available to all equal terms. Notably, immediately after the Brown decision in 1954, the executive director of the then-named National Association of Retarded Children drew attention to the Supreme Court decision with parents and disability advocacy groups suggesting that the historical case had huge potentials and opportunities for children with special needs. So, again, you can go to rightslaw.com and... Uh, and look further at how the Brown versus Board of Education decision uh, assisted in special education. Based on, based on the Brown decision, one of the first early pieces of federal legislation was established providing federal aid to assist local education agencies, otherwise known as LEAs, in a meeting that needs of educationally deprived children was the 1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act, ESA. Authorized for one year, ESA authorized federal funding to states to establish sponsoring institutions and centers for children with handicaps. ESA was amended and improved for nearly over the next 20 years until it was renamed the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act in 1990 and then reauthorized in 2004. Extending Brown to children with disabilities was Park and the Mills case. So before we move on to that, uh, we have a break coming up and I just want to say that one of the big reauthorizations of IDEA, again, that's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, was in 2004. And what it did was it improved parent interaction, meaning that parents had to be involved now in the decision-making around their child's education. So when we get back, we'll discuss like, well, where did that come from and how did that come to be? So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. 
we can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, well, welcome back, and we are discussing special education, the history of special education, but specifically more about the racism and marginalization, including discrimination that people with disabilities have dealt with for hundreds of years. And we discussed a a couple of different um, landmark lawsuits, case laws, I should say, including uh, the Brown decision. Now, there are two cases from the early 1970s. There's the Park and the Mills cases, and both used the Brown decision to specifically address the issues of education for children with disabilities. At this point in American history, there were millions of children that were denied education and denied enrollment in public schools. And they were insufficiently served in alternatives, institutions, that usually had pretty deplorable conditions. In both of these cases, the courts applied the Brown decision by using due process clause of the 14th Amendment to provide parents of children with disabilities specific rights to challenge and strike down state laws that denied their child the right to public education. Um, the Park versus Pennsylvania case. It argued that the exclusions of retarded children complained of, of, I'm sorry, complained of are based on four state statutes. The first state section provided in part that the State Board of Education is relieved from providing the, a public education to any child that a psychologist determines is uneducatable and untrainable. 
The second section allowed the state to indefinitely postpone the admission to public school of any child who attained, who had not attained a mental age of five years. The language of the third and fourth sections provided additional and unreasonable excuses for the state and the Board of Education to deny disabled children the right to public education. Now, first, you got to realize that it's very difficult to assess a developmental level. You have to look at the appropriate uh, uh, skills that the person has learned during their life and what somebody has learned in India may differ from somebody that's learned something in Iraq, that's learned something from in Pennsylvania, that's learned something in California. They're, we're exposed to different things, and so sometimes tests can be biased. And on the next show, I'm going to be focusing on how assessments were done and how they did a lot of good but also did a lot of harm. Now, looking at saying somebody's untrainable, well, that's relative, you know. And so looking at only purely educational or academic skills, yes, you may say that this child cannot learn, cannot learn to read. And that might be the case, but it doesn't mean he can't learn to take care of himself or learn to interact. So we'll get more into that in a minute. But the Parker case was on behalf of 14 children with developmental disabilities. And they argued that under Pennsylvania state law, these children were denied access to public education based on the four sections. The plaintiffs argued that under the Brown, under Brown, their rights were violated under the Equal Protection Clause and Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The parties entered into consent agreement, which was then approved by the District Court for Eastern uh, District of Pennsylvania. The court entered the, con- the consent agreement. Much of the court language used by the parties of the court in this case laid the framework for the rights which are now provided for children with disabilities within the federal and state statutes under IDEA. For example, in Clause 2 of the consent agreement, we find that the framework language to what is now referred to as an IEP as well as due process no child uh, of school age who is mentally retarded or is thought uh, thought by any school official or by his parents to be mentally retarded shall be subjected to a change in educational status without first being accorded notice and the opportunity of due process. Okay, so what does that mean? You can't just kick a kid out of a program. You can't just kick him out of kindergarten. You can't just send him home for the rest of his educational career because he didn't do well in one environment. Clause 3 provides court-made language that laid the groundwork for the IEP meeting. An IEP, by the way, is an individual education program. It's kind of the contract between the school district and the the student, what the student is going to be provided and what goals he's trying to obtain during the one school year. Most importantly, the consent agreement stated Expert testimony in these actions indicate that all mentally retarded persons are capable of benefiting from a program of education and training. It's Commonwealth obligation to place each mentally retarded child in a free public program of education and training appropriate to the child's capacity. This is, in part, the framework for FAPE and for IDEA. So, 
this was the first time and the first case that said, no, we're not going to exclude children with mental retardation just because they don't, they can't learn the typical academics. We're going to set up more specific individualized programming for them and provide free and public education for them. Now, the Mills versus Board of Education Act, or sorry, the Mills versus Board of Education of the District of Columbia, as in the Park case, was being decided by the Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania. The Mills case was being decided in the District of Columbia. Mills expanded the ruling of Park beyond children with developmental disabilities to children with behavioral, mental, hyperactive, and emotional disabilities from being denied placement in public education. Similar to Park, the school system in Mills agreed that it's a legal obligation to provide a publicly supported education to each resident of the District of Columbia who's capable of benefiting from such instruction. However, unlike Park, the school system in Mills argued that it was incapable to do so because of lack of financial resources. And the court held that no child may be denied a public education because of mental, behavioral, physical, or emotional handicaps or deficiencies. Now, the court, that's a, that's a huge thing. Because if you had behavioral issues, you were, you were just thrown out of school. If you had mental health issues that caused you to be agitated or aggressive in any way, you had no, no schooling, which meant that your life was going to be pretty dismal. So it's very interesting to hear that in the Mills case, it was decided that these children couldn't be excluded from school anymore. <clears throat> and there's a lot of different outcomes to this. Um, there, including what would have to do with assessment and assessment of those behavioral issues. Um, in California, uh, in the early 1990s, there was a case of a child who was behaviorally acting out on the way home from school and there was some kind of a rug or something in the back of the bus and they took that rug and they rolled the kid into the rug to restrain him and he died by the time he got home, he suffocated. At that point it was determined that behaviors needed to be assessed to determine what the function was, and it wasn't allowed anymore to utilize aversives. So I'll, I'll talk more about that uh, probably next week or at least next time. Um, <clears throat> but that was a huge case, the Hughes bill, because the Hughes bill wasn't a case, but a, a, a law that was enacted by the state of California. Because it required school districts to pay for these assessments to be done. <clears throat> and because of that, a lot of kids got help. And rather than just being pushed off into some kind of institution or, frankly, ending up in jail. Subsequent to Park and Mills, 27 other federal courts followed these two decisions, which eventually led to the federal legislature passing the federal laws in which guarantee a free, appropriate public education for all children. 
one of the federal laws that emerged from this decision was in 1975, and it was known as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, now called Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, PL 94142, Public Law 94142, allowed for the education of all children uh, with disabilities. And that, in 1975, actually looked at six to 18-year-olds. Later on, the law was extended in the 90s to, uh, in fact, in 1996, I believe, to three to, sorry, three to eight to 21. And then later, in 2004, that was again extended from birth to 2000, excuse me, from birth to 22. So the Park case and the Mills case allowed for those extensive levels of supports to be uh, implemented. Under IDEA, all public schools that accept federal funding must provide a free and appropriate public education for children with disabilities. IDEA also requires that each child with a disability has an individual education program that must be implemented in in the least restrictive environment. And I'll talk about what that least restrictive environment means at a later date. That it really means where can that child be educated with the most normalcy of any other child. And one of the very first cases that addressed the term appropriate is the Board of Education versus Rowley. And we are just about at a, a break time. So... I'll, I'll discuss the rally case when we return, but again, when we look at least restrictive environment, you have to remember that most people with disabilities were institutionalized and put into the most restrictive environments where they couldn't have any freedom and they didn't have anything like any other kid. So when we look at LRE, least restrictive environment, we look at what's the, you know, the most typical kind of education. So when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about some case laws that have changed the lives of people with disabilities. We'll be back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone. 
and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back, and and we've been talking about special education, special education laws, but specifically, I'm trying to bring out the point that there's been a lot of discrimination against people with disabilities, and it's only been in the last 30 years, frankly, since the passing of the 1965 Civil Rights Act that we also saw civil rights uh, enacted for people with disabilities. Um, So I've been talking about different cases and um, the last thing we were talking about was something called least restrictive environment and what least in, or LRE and what LRE is 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 the person being educated in the program that's most appropriate for their level of educational attainment and does it also have the least amount of movement away from what's a normal education for a kid that age. So if you have a 10-year-old who's in fifth grade, but they happen to have mental retardation, can they, or intellectual disability, can they be educated in a typical fifth grade class? Can they be educated in a typical fifth grade class with supports? Can they be educated part-time in a fifth grade class and part-time in a more specialized program? So this was a new thing. There was a case called the Board of Education versus Rowley. And let me read a little bit about that. In the Rowley, in Rowley, the court further elaborated on what is deemed appropriate under FAPE. Amy Rowley was a deaf child that performed better than the typical child in her mainstream classroom and was easily advancing from grade to grade in LRE with the use of FM hearing aid. Now, an FM hearing aid is the teacher wears a microphone and the student has on headphones so that they can hear directly from the teacher's voice right to their, to their ears. So she was hard of hearing. She wasn't completely deaf. Um, During an IEP meeting, Amy's parents requested that the school district provide Amy with a qualified sign language interpreter in all of her classes, asserting 
that under the IDEA, such measures were deemed appropriate. After losing a due process and the review levels, the rallies appealed to the U.S. District Court and won. The school district then appealed, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed the district court's decision, whereby the school district then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The, the issue before the U.S. Supreme Court in the rally is what is meant by IDA's requirement for a free, quote-unquote, appropriate public education. Now, that's the difference between special education, by the way, and regular education, is the word, everybody gets a free public education. But the word appropriate really means individualized. So who gets a more individualized program? After reviewing the legislative history and the intent of IDA, the court held that the intent of the act was more to open the door to public education to handicapped children on appropriate terms than to guarantee any particular level of education. We conclude that the basic floor of opportunity provided by the acts consists of access to specialized instruction and related services, which are individually designed to provide educational benefit to the child. Thus, the Rowley decision clarified that children with disabilities were entitled to access to education that provided educational benefit. A school district does not have to maximize each disabled child's potential. The Rowley's decision also held that the procedural safeguards of IDA are just as equally important as the substantive program offered to the disabled child. What that means is the procedural safeguards is how the programs are developed. They're developed by a team, based on assessments, based on current and, and what are deemed evidence-based practices. Therefore, the court's inquiry under IDEA has two parts. First, whether the state complied with the procedural safeguard of the act. And second, whether the child's IEP is reasonably calculated to enable the child to benefit from his educational plan. The court also held that under IDEA, the burden of proof is the the burden of proof is under the evidence standard. So what it says is you got to provide a good education and provide the things that need to be in that kid's program in order for them to be successful, but you're not guaranteeing that they're going to be the best student ever or that they're going to benefit from everything that they're given, but they have to be given the opportunities. So it's interesting because... There are a couple other cases that um, I wanted to discuss, but frankly, we're, we don't have enough time today, so I'll pick up on it again next time. But I do want to just kind of further discuss, uh, you know, children with severe disabilities, the kind of disabilities where they, you can't talk, you can't move, you, you need pervasive support in all areas. Well, these are the children that I have spent my career working with. And I once did an assessment on a child that did demonstrate 
a lack of motor ability, a lack of language. It was very challenging to determine whether they had learned academic skills or not. But what I tried to look at was like how important is the school for his socialization, for his stimulation in his life, for daily routine, and were there things that he was learning so that he could have a more successful life himself. His father in particular was his biggest advocate and he did fight for his son to have every support system out there, including having an occupational therapy uh, treatment room built into his house. And the judge denied it because he was indicating basically that he didn't think and, and there wasn't proof that these things were going to benefit him. But what would benefit him would be going to school, learning how to do part of and having what's called partial participation in his program so that he did have a life that was interactive, stimulating, and he would learn. Even if the learning meant learning a new person's face or learning a new sound and reacting to that. So the next time we're together, I'm going to continue talking about some case laws and include how some of those case laws have not only assisted, but maybe continue to cause some hindrance and some discrimination amongst people with disabilities. So I thank you for tuning into the show today. And remember that on solutions and strategies, taking on the challenge in your life, we're about your successes and celebrating all those challenges that you get through on a daily basis. So blessings until next time, and we'll talk again. Thank you, and bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.